0: Reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look, delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, the best independent sports podcast on the planet, is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponko Chicken. Ponko Chicken is the home of the best Japanese American chicken tender, and it continues to rack up the awards in Atlanta, winning the 2019 Super Bowl Live Top Sling Vendor Award, multiple best-selling tastes at the Taste of Atlanta Awards in 2017 and 2018, and even the Best Fried Chicken Award at the 2018 ATL Cluckfest. Ponko is all about connecting cultures, cultivating happiness, one chicken tender at a time. I love Ponko, their family. And I can't thank them enough for their support of this podcast. It it just it means a lot. And um, yeah, so go to their Midtown location, their Tucker location, and all their future locations as they take over Atlanta because they're family and I love them and I couldn't be more excited to see more and more locations pop up and all of that um, that goes with it. So go to, go to Panko, get some chicken, get some rice, get some beer. There's all kinds of great stuff. Um, whatever you want, Ponco chicken has it. So go do that. Um, also go to chase Thomas podcast.com. I am, uh, I'm writing my ass off there, uh, these days. So go do that. Read my stuff. You can get access to all my previous episodes. You can buy my merch. You can learn more about just what I do, what I do and why I believe I'm going to get where I want to go. Um, this is my dream, this uh, the this sports media thing, and um, you were going to see me on ESPN one day, or Sports Illustrated, or Fox Sports, or the or whoever. Um, because I'm not going to quit. I am. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep grinding. I'm going to keep punching out episodes, writing articles, and just outworking everyone. Because I just, I just want this more, and. I believe my product, and I believe in where I'm going. Um, we're over 300 episodes strong, and this is what I want. Uh, there will be no slowing down. Took a break, but this is uh, this is my jam, and this is what I want. This is my passion, and uh, yeah. So leave a rating, leave a review on iTunes. It means a lot. Share my articles on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, um, and join me as i keep climbing the ladder and all of that because i i just i need your support so if you like the podcast keep listening keep subscribing tell tell your friends keep sharing it out keep reading my work and uh yeah so okay all right uncle darren let's go chase thomas pod the chase thomas podcast
1: um
0: my nephew needs me to, to record see i hate
1: i already hate it i hate it
0: Alright, welcome back to a Winston edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am now joined by Tyler Nunez of TigerRag.com. Tyler, good evening. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you, man?
0: I am good. Um, I I think it's interesting, Tiger Rag, the Bible of LSU sports. That's high praise um, to have that front (laughs) and center on your website.
1: That's what we call ourselves. I'm not sure some people would agree, but we have been around for about 40 years now. Uh, it's been a good run, so uh, we're kind of a staple in the area, and uh, I, I've only been here for about a year, but it's got a really good tradition around here.
0: Okay, okay. And speaking of things uh, from 40 years ago, I think that's been the, the LSU offense offensive <laughs> model um, prior to the season was um, something that looked like football in 1964, but they they have moved forward. The Joe Brady experience is real, but we have to start with Joe Burrow. Um, yeah. Did you see this development coming for him in year two?
1: Um, I knew he was going to be a lot better this year. Uh, I knew he was going to be running an offense that he was a lot more comfortable with, something more like he ran in high school, and I knew that that was going to lead to more success. Uh, I'm not sure that I expected him to have five to one odds as a Heisman front runner uh, in week two. It's not something that I would have uh, put money on, but uh, I, I think that he's a really talented guy. He's really a gamer. Uh, coaches are absolutely in love with this guy. Every coach that I've come across that has come across Shilboro is just absolutely love, in love with, with the way he plays and the style he plays and the passion he plays with. Uh, the, the the joke is, is he doesn't like to slide because last year he said he doesn't slide. He'd rather just run over somebody. Ed Orgeron disagrees. He thinks he should probably slide more often than not. Uh but but just really a hard nosed guy, someone who who has really taken control of his team in a way that a quarterback really hasn't done at LSU at least since Zach Mettenberger and maybe even before that. So uh really, really uh looking forward to seeing what he accomplishes this season.
0: Yeah, I mean going through the the stats with him, it's kinda of wild because last year he was so erratic and the completion percentage was also just Not what you'd want, but this year, um, last I checked, I think he's like second in completion percentage behind Jalen Hurts, um, former SEC friend who's completing almost all of his passes and just, um, he might not throw a pick this year. I, I could see a scenario where Jalen Hurts gets through the regular season without throwing a pick in that Oklahoma offense. I, I would not rule it out, folks. Um, but he's efficient, and he's actually throwing a lot of touchdown passes. Like, you have Jake Fromm over yeah. there just tossing two in like a 6.2 yards per attempt. But Joe Burrow's going downfield. He's doing stuff. He's stepping into the pocket. He's getting the playmakers from the outside involved. Um, I'm sure Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry are watching that. Like, um, could y'all have not done this years ago? Why are we <laughs> just now deciding to get all of these elite skill talent guys in the edge um, involved. It turns out when you uh, spread the ball around to LSU receivers, good things happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To be fair, Jarvis and Odell kind of got there. That year with Zach Mettenberger in 2013, they threw the ball a fair amount. Uh, the difference here is, is they're, really, uh, a pace. Uh, they're really running a pace. They're really running up-tempo with this offense, which is something that LSU has never done in its history. Uh, and it's really, uh, it's taken the defenses that they've seen so far, granted one of them was Georgia Southern, but it's taken them off-guard and uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see what it looks like whenever they get into the meet of SEC play. What's that going to look like against the Mississippi State, who usually has a pretty good defense? Uh, what's that going to look like against Alabama? What's that going to look, look like against Florida? That's going to be the real first test in a few weeks. Um, I, I'm really interested to see what it looks like. The, the big storyline coming out of Texas, outside of obviously winning, was the fact that LSU had three wide receivers with over 100 yards, in Jamar Chase, Terrace Marshall, and Justin Jefferson, and that's something that's never happened before at LSU. So, uh, the excitement here in Baton Rouge is, is palpable. Uh, they, it hasn't felt like this uh, from a fan base perspective since 2011, whenever they were just kind of rolling over teams uh, on their way to a national championship game. But uh, yeah, just uh, it, it, it's kind of crazy because I, I, I knew the offense would look different. We knew this wasn't some kind of like conspiracy theory. Like we were getting freaked the way that Les Miles kind of lied to everyone a couple of years ago. I knew it was going to be for real. I just didn't know that it was going to be this successful, this quickly. So uh, I'm kind of, I'm still trying to kind of process it.
0: Do you think this is ultimately what Ed Orgeron wants? Is this the offensive oh. scheme that he's comfortable with?
1: One hundred percent. This is something he's been okay. talking about since he he took over the job in a full time capacity. Last mm. year, he much of the, the offense ran the way it did, much to the chagrin of Ed Orgeron Last year, he talked about wanting to have multiple tight ends. He talked about wanting to run a spread. He brought in Joe Brady after. Uh, uh, they, they had a meeting with him at some point last season, in which they, Joe Brady just kind of threw in threw some ideas, and immediately at that moment they knew they had to bring him in full time uh, because because he can run the kind of offense that Ed Orgeron wanted to run. This is absolutely Ed Orgeron's kind of brainchild. It's his baby. Uh, he may be a defensive-minded coach, but he knows what he wants to see on the offensive side of the ball, uh, and, and he knows that from his time coaching you know the Reggie Bush era at at USC. He knows what a championship team looks like. And uh, that, that's what he's trying to emulate with, with this offense. Obviously, this is a little bit more modern. It's a little bit more spread out, but that's what he wants. He wants a hard-nosed defense. He wants a defensive line to get to the quarterback. And on offense, he wants a really good quarterback throwing to really talented wide receivers.
0: So how does the distinction between who's calling plays and who's running what um, work with Brady and um, the other guy? Who I'm not going to pronounce his name because <laughs> I feel like I've... Yes, I've I've fucked it up on multiple occasions, so I'm avoiding that um, on this podcast. But how does that work? How does that divide-and-conquer co-OC stuff work with those two?
1: Yeah, so basically uh, the way it's worked from what we gather, that we know they're both sitting next to each other in the booth, uh, both looking on. Uh, mm-hmm. Steve Ensminger has the final call and everything, but during between plays, Joe Brady is feeding him ideas. He, he's calling potential plays. Uh, and Enzinger will sometimes defer to him. Uh, if a, a lot, apparently, Edward Ryan said a lot. I can't give an exact percentage of what calls, of, of how many calls Joe Brady's making. But uh, apparently, Joe Brady is involved in, in calling plays. Uh, but, but the final decision is up to Steve Enzinger. He's the one who chooses ultimately what plays being called. But he absolutely takes uh, into consideration what Joe Brady is saying. And I mean, it's it's one of the more interesting setups I've seen in college football. I don't know that I've ever seen a 1A, 1B offensive coordinator situation like I've seen this, uh, but it's something I kind of like. I like the idea of two guys up there who are kind of bouncing ideas off of each other and, and ultimately calling what they feel is the best play after some collaboration.
0: Were you surprised that they beat Texas on Saturday?
1: No, I really wasn't. Uh, I, thought, I thought it was going to be a really close game. I, I really was a 50-50 toss-up in my mind. Uh, but I thought that LSU had better athletes on defense. Obviously, that's not the way the, the the game turned out. I was surprised with the fact that it turned into a shootout, and I I might you, I might be a little bit surprised with the fact that LSU was able to beat a shootout win, win a shootout against a Big Twelve team like Texas. Uh, but uh, but overall, I wasn't super surprised that they they lost or that they won. I. Th- I I was fascinated with the matchup because of the history between uh, Ed Orgeron and Tom Herman and the fact that LSU wanted Tom Herman and couldn't get him and the fact that they had both taken over those programs in in similar states uh, and and that they had both had these uh, overachieving years last season in which they won 10 games in a New Year's Six Bowl. I I was fascinated with who would come out on top because, obviously, whoever did would have kind of an inside track towards – uh, to, to the college football playoff, but uh, I, I love the fact that the game turned out the way it did. It was an absolutely is absolutely a blast in there. Uh, props to the crowd in, in the stadium there. I think Texas has some really good football fans. I know LSU fans are not a big fan of the tailgating experience out there, but obviously Austin is a much different city than Baton Rouge. Uh, but uh, yeah, I I am not necessarily surprised that three. Uh, uh, I was surprised with how the game played out.
0: Do you think the completion percentage is sustainable for, for Joe Burrow that he is at the top of the board in the SEC and this all keeps chugging along?
1: I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's something absurd, right? Like it's something like seven between seventy and eighty percent. I don't know I think if he 80. can do that all yeah. season. It, yeah, I don't know that you can I don't know that any quarterback in the SEC can do that all season. Uh we've seen some pretty great quarterbacks come through the sec and uh i don't know that many of them have made it through uh looking like that i i do think that though that uh joe burrow proved last season that he's a really smart quarterback uh one that can make smart plays one plays that don't lead to interceptions he doesn't turn the ball over very often uh he obviously threw an interception uh against texas after a pass but but those are usually the ones that come they usually don't come after aaron throws uh to, to double coverage. So, uh, I I don't know that I'll keep the completion percentage the same, especially once they get into the meat of the schedule, going guys, teams in Florida and Alabama. Uh, but I do think that he will be able to keep the ball out of the defense's hands, which I think is probably the most important thing about this offense.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, I um, it's just different, and I love all the reactions. Like we've just all been accustomed to LSU's offensive ineptitude and. It's yeah. just it's different. Like Kirk Herbstreit was completely surprised by what Joe Burrow did did um, on Saturday, but I um, I don't know. I think it's fascinating. Um, if you look at the rest of the schedule, who currently presents the, the outside of Alabama? Because that's just easy. Yeah, um, yeah who Presents really the biggest challenge to what LSU has on both sides of the wall.
1: I think Florida is going to be a really interesting test. I know I've mentioned them a couple times, but Florida—it's going to be their first real test. Obviously, Vanderbilt's their first SEC game, but I don't think anyone's expecting that to be a, a barn burner. Uh,
0: no. I think Florida's
1: gonna. I think Florida's gonna come to Baton Rouge with a chip on their shoulder. Uh, obviously, they beat LSU last year. LSU is gonna want to get payback, and obviously, there, there's. Been, I don't know if you know. There's been this whole rivalry between these two programs over the last four years because of a hurricane that forced the scheduling gap in which mm. LSU has played in the swamp for the past two years because Florida had to come to Baton Rouge later in the season three years ago, and then Florida won that game. So it, it's been a whole – there's a lot of bad blood between the two programs. I think that uh, – but, but as far as on-the-field stuff goes, I think that Florida has a really good pass rush, which is something that I think can really disrupt this LSU offense if implemented properly. We saw that early in Texas. Uh, Texas was throwing some very interesting, uh, complicated blitzes at them and LSU's offensive line had no idea how to handle it. It wasn't until LSU kind of started speeding the game up, forcing Texas to simplify their defense and simplify their blitzes that the offense really got going. Um, I don't know if, if that's going to work against Florida. I think Florida also has the DB, the DBs to, uh, to, to kind of back up that, that, that that, that, uh, pressure that the front is going to give them. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how um, Ellis responds to that. Also, I think Texas A&M is a game that everyone has circled on their schedule because of the seven overtime game that happened last year. And then also Texas A&M might have the ability to kind of shoot out with them with, uh, with Mond over there. I really like him as a quarterback. So I think that's another interesting game that I'm looking forward to. I guess I'm cheating because both of those are in Tiger stadium, but LSU's road schedule isn't really as brutal as, as it can
0: I wish Georgia was on their schedule again this year.
1: Ah, uh, so do I. That'd be so much fun.
0: Um I I just don't know how much of that beating last year was real and like what that game looks like especially this year with their how that team looks. I mean, maybe we'll get a rematch in the SEC Championship game. I think that's very much in play. Um, Absolutely. But we'll we'll have to see. Who is the most impressive wide receiver of the bunch to you?
1: Uh I think Justin Jefferson is just like he's so talented. Uh he's such a good route runner. He makes all of his routes look the same, and it just really throws defensive backs off. I think moving him into the slot this year has really kind of opened things up for him as well, uh, and he's really been quiet as LSU's hottest receiver. He's, he's, he's got something like three or 400 receiving yards right now, and it's just uh, he, he's, he, he he's so good. Uh, now, Jamar, that's nothing to take away from Jamar Chase and Terrace Marshall. I think both of those guys are really talented. Jamar Chase, for sure, has an NFL career ahead of him. He made some some big point plays against Texas, just kind of going up and getting balls. And he's really talented. Uh, but I think Justin Jefferson just has the complete package. He's, he's, the, he's the most talented of the Jefferson brothers that have come through LSU, and he's, he's the third one. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what his career looks like because he, he's just a really talented guy.
0: So if you had to guess and you had to put on your um, clairvoyant um, Tyler hat, how does the season unfold for LSU? Uh, what is your gut telling you?
1: Um, okay, so I have a rule, and I'm not going to say that LSU is going to beat Alabama until they beat Alabama. So I'm, I'm marking that. I think all we
0: want is for it to be fun. Like, can it just I, not be 6-3 to three again? Can they, can, if they <laughs> lose, can they at least lose 28-31? Can, can
1: we get a, a shootout between Tua and, and Joe Burrow? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you on that. I think that I, I very much would would like to see that as well. If we can get an, an LSU Alabama game to emulate what LSU Texas look like, I think a lot of people would be happy. Uh, especially if LSU won it. I don't know if LSU fans will be too happy if they lose regardless, but um, I I can't help but think that there's another loss on the potential loss on the schedule somewhere. They're going to get tested, uh, whether it be Florida or Texas A&M. I think one of those teams can really uh, test them. Hopefully not one of the Mississippi schools. I really don't all miss. I don't think for sure. Mississippi state gave them a little bit of trouble last year, but with the way the offense is rolling, I don't really see that being a problem. But I think Florida and Texas A&M, as I mentioned earlier, are really potential games that they could, they could lose. And, uh, right now, just speaking conservatively, I'm going to say they're going to lose one of those games. I say 10 and two, miss the SEC championship, potentially get into the sugar bowl or, uh, Maybe another day or six. That's not what a bunch of LSU fans want to hear, but based on experience, that's what I'm going to go on. That said, I think the sky's the limit for this team. I think the defense is talent, talented enough if they if they can learn how to be on the field a little bit longer than they're used to. Uh, I think they're really going to. I think they can complement this offense in a, in a really big way. And uh, I I haven't seen an LSU team this talented and this schematically uh, adept in a really long time. So I'm I'm really Curious to see how this plays out, much like everyone else's.
0: I think they're in a good position. Like the the second best West team is always in a great position now. I think with Alabama, because yeah. like, even if you lose that game, you can avoid the the title game and and you, you can could you in. could
1: backdoor your way in, yeah.
0: Right, and that's what I think is very much a possibility for LSU. I think there is a very very real shot that they back their way into the the title game. I mean the, the uh, You know
1: what, I forgot about Auburn. Auburn is also a pretty dangerous Okay, game. go ahead and cancel think, that one
0: out. I am an Auburn fan, and I've watched both of these games, and Bo Nix, the freshman experience, is um, bumpy, to say the least. That sure. game is I still mean, not there. I mean, there. like, do, do
1: you think that... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip the tables on you here. Do you think that they're just kind of buying into the future with, with Bo Nix? Do you think that's the goal here?
0: I mean, you have you know,
1: to. Yeah. That so you kind of, like, forfeit this, not necessarily forfeit this season, but, like, take the championship picture out for this season potentially you
0: know play for it in a couple of years oh yeah like i think it's because this is gus gus's job is on the line based on how this season looks and it's not really just wins and losses it's optics and if bo Nix looks like um the next jake Fromm type guy i understand they're very very different players but like that next yeah. yeah 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 starter who gus can have for three years where like you just can't have a bad year and you might get lucky something like that um he does have that upside. I, I mean, I love Bo Nix, but it's just there's still a lot of weird stuff with this offense. Boo Whitlow still struggles. It's just weird watching Auburn with no elite running back. That's also just a really weird thing. And you brought in Kenny Dillingham from Memphis to kind of shore that up a little bit. And the offensive line's better for sure. The defense is still legit, but I, I don't know. I, I think they have to go like if Bo Nix has in some exciting moments against LSU and Alabama. And it's not a blowout, and they're they're close, and they finish eight and four. And Bo Nix is getting a lot of sleepy. Like, oh, is he going to be the second best quarterback in the SEC next year? If, uh, or maybe even the best, with all the talent leaving with From to everybody else, um, that's enough to get people excited and to look towards the future. But I, I don't know. I have this year. I can go ahead and cross them off. I don't think they have a real shot yeah. at issue this, this year.
1: Do do uh. Do Auburn fans ever think what if, like, LSU had gotten the snap-off in time in that one game before Les Miles and Gus Malzahn were basically fighting for their jobs in that game? Where, like, whichever coach lost was losing their job, and it happened to be Les Miles. Do you ever, like, wonder what if, and, like, think, like, maybe we wouldn't have to deal with this anymore?
0: No, I, I wonder what if, uh, what if Joe Burrow and that dumb pass interference call did not happen last year, and LSU did not beat <laughs> Auburn in one of the dumbest games I've ever seen.
1: It was a pretty wild game. It was a, that uh, game
0: sucked. I hated that game. I, that I hate game was to call awful. it a barn
1: burner because you know LSU and Auburn have that history, but
0: no, it was it was awful. And the penalties, and then the game-winning field like I was just. I, that game was so stupid. That was an extremely Jared stupid Dylan of, all, game. of
1: all people was like the—he was the guy who had like the big catch for LSU, and we haven't heard about him since. He still on the team. I don't know if he's taking a snap this
0: year. What an asshole! <laughs> he, went to, he like has this great moment and then disappears forever. Um, uh, I don't like it. I don't like any I'm, of it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, ruining the first half of this podcast tonight. Oh, no. I appreciate it.
1: Uh anytime, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Always good to go back down the 2018 LSU Auburn Rabbit Hole. Um really yeah. love to do that, folks.
1: Anytime, anytime.
0: Um all right, man. Well, is there anything we should check out from you this week on tigerrag.com?
1: Yeah, go go just go to tigerrag.com. If you want. we have a physical magazine that we put out every month. I I'm, I'm really proud of what we do there. Uh we also have our own podcast, the Tiger Rag podcast. Go ahead and uh download that. Uh if you like chases, I'm sure you like ours and uh yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how this LSU season rolls. I'm I'm very curious to see exactly what this turns into. I, I LSU fans have their hopes high right now, and that is a very rare thing. So hopefully, it doesn't all come crashing down on.
0: I can't say I share that sentiment, and I very much hope that it all comes crashing down. So,
1: um,
0: <laughs> I I know,
1: I know a lot of LSU fans, man. Like my dad's an LSU fan. I can't I can't I hope that for them.
0: I understand. I understand. Um, All right, man. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, We will have to touch base again soon.
1: Yeah, anytime, man. Like I said, I enjoyed it.
0: All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am now joined by someone who got the Chase Thomas Podcast bump and is now a full timer at the Athletic Vancouver. Harmon Dial, how are you, man?
2: I'm doing well, thank you. And yeah, it was uh it's always great being on the podcast and and happy to be back on again.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's cool. How how has everything been? Um covering the Canucks full-time now.
2: Well, we're we're just starting to get into the the thick of things training camp opens up in uh, in a couple days now media day is tomorrow so things are slowly starting to ratchet up and in the past week has been pretty hectic with uh, everything that's been going on so it's been busy but i've been enjoying every moment of it just trying to soak the entire experience in because it's it's the first time um Uh, many firsts first training camp first regular season and to have the honor and privilege to do it at such a young age i'm super excited
0: yeah that's that's awesome um who have you gotten to know so far on the team in the front office coaching staff anyone in particular
2: yet yeah so as far as relationship building that's still very much a work in progress Uh, i've briefly gotten to chat with uh with a few players and uh uh, I've at least met each one of them, um, at least almost each one of them so far. So it's just now about taking the the casual uh, conversations and, and making sure that you're a familiar face for them moving forward. And as far as the management side of things, I've already been uh, prior to starting full time in in contact with uh, a couple of people on the hockey operations side of things, and uh, and and head coach Travis Green and. Just recently introduced myself to Jim Benning, the general manager of the Canucks. So, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, moving parts in that, but uh, looking forward to building some relationships moving forward.
0: All right, I like it. I like it. So, um, the NHL season still a little ways away, but there are some current storylines that I think are fascinating and things that I are, are worth discussing. So, I want to throw. Um, some stuff at you and get your get your perspective on it. Um, first off, I feel like we have to start with the amount of restricted free agents and just free agents in general um, who are still just sitting out there with training camp getting started. Um, why are so many big name guys still unsigned right now?
2: Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of people were foreshadowing this possibility. And I think part of Part of the the holdup, really, when you when you talk to a lot of the insiders, it appears to be the term that right now there's a shift in the RFA landscape where where players are realizing that they're worth a lot more on their second contracts than they've typically been paid for. I mean, you look at before it was any contract you sign after an ELC, you'd get one of your star players at a ridiculously cheap cost. I mean, you look at Mark Shifley. Uh, Nathan McKinnon, Alexander Barkov. Those are just a few examples of players, elite talents that are clocking in under 7 million dollars against the cap. And so this I guess the shift really be- began in um, with a few a few different extensions. I think the Austin Matthews one really set a bar as far as he he got the high cap hit, but he also kept the term term down to to five years. So he's walking right into unrestricted free agency in the heart of his prime, which completely it, it it's it's something that's gonna be fascinating to see forward as far as the term. And we've already seen with Zach Lorenzi's contract, he's not going straight into UFA. He will will his contract, his three year one will expire uh, with one year left as an RFA, but the point here is, te- RFA's are understanding that they're worth really. Um, it's changing. It's they they aren't they previously weren't getting paid for the production that they put up, and and so now. They're, they're negotiating hard, and I think they're waiting for some players. I, I don't think anyone wants to be the first one to sign because they're going to be the ones to really set the market, and I, I feel like a lot of players are waiting for the first shoe to drop, whether that's a Mitch Marner, whether that's a Mika Ranton and someone to really set the market and for the rest of the RFAs to to file and clock in accordingly.
0: Who do you think it ultimately is going to be, though? Who do you think signs first?
2: That's a really tough one. Um it seems like Mitch Marner's at a tough impasse. You look in Vancouver, Brock Besser, uh, and Jim Benning still seem uh, far apart here in Vancouver. Uh, it doesn't sound like there's been much on the Matthew Kachuk front in Calgary. To me, and this is more, a guess, more than anything else, I feel like the defensemen, now that we've seen the first shoe drop with Zach that they're more likely to expedite the process so whether that's an Ivan Provorov or a Charlie McAvoy uh just because Wierenski is signed and he's kind of set the market for the demon that those uh those players are potential are potentially going to be the first to to go now
0: okay do you think there is a strong or medium possibility that there's a lockout in the near future
2: that's a really interesting question, and on that front, I'm not completely like I haven't been in tune. It sounds like the NHL themselves have specifically said that they're not going to reopen the the CBA, uh, which would have led to a potential lockout. But the Players Association still has that option, and and right now the the point of contention certainly appears to be escrow. And I, again, I'm not super. Uh, knowledgeable on that topic, but that's something that the players are really looking to fight for right now. It seems like it's like if I were to wager that there's probably a chance that we don't see a work stoppage. That there's a greater chance that uh we were able to continue through without a without any halts or, or stoppages. But it's a very fluid situation, and all it takes is is one moment, one key. Pivotal variable within the CBA for the Players Associ- Association to walk away and say that that down the line they're, they're going to have to reopen it. Do you think
0: the Devils are going to be able to sign Pavel Zaka?
2: Well, they just announced it. Oh, did they? In like the last yeah, 15 think, minutes? No, I think they signed either earlier today or... Um, or yesterday even
0: i thought they were if trying I, to get yeah it. i didn't know that it was yeah official.
2: yesterday
0: mm, uh, it's oh yes been here pretty it is much, yeah okay yeah. three yeah. years 6.75 6. the- million because they were concerned yeah. that he wasn't that he was gonna be gone and they okay so they got the deal done huh okay well that's good that defeats that whole question see there's just too much going <laughs> on man there's too much going on Harmon. um what do you think ultimately happens with Mitch Marner? Because they've been very, it's interesting. You have to like read through the tea leaves on how front office types are describing situations and the, the adjectives they use to describe certain things. And it just, the not a priority stuff is, is interesting, but the Leafs are in a weird situation where they have a lot of young talent. They have to pay. They've already paid a couple. Um, and this is going to be something that they're going to have to deal with for a while. Um, what do you think ultimately happens? Do you think he's on this team or do you think they move him?
2: That's, on the Mitch Marner front, you, you hear the rumored terms that they've offered him and it sounds like they have been entirely reasonable that on a long-term extension they've been willing to offer him $11 million, which is a few ticks below Austin Matthews. And for whatever reason, it just seems like Mitch Marner does not, like his camp is, is set in its way where Matthews is, is, there, is his only comparable, which quite frankly is a little bit insane because you look at a lot of the market comparables as far as scoring wingers and take a look at Marner's resume, he, he isn't worth 11 11 and a half million dollars you're you'd certainly be overpaying him now obviously to keep him in leafs uniform would i give him 10 and a half maybe even 11 on a long-term deal sure but it sounds like that's still not enough for marner and at that point you're talking about paying a guy when all of his market comparables based off of that he should be making nine maybe 10 million and even on a bridge deal on a three-year that they've been incredibly generous eight nine million dollars so i think to that extent Marner's camp probably is going to have to give give some way because i remember hearing chris johnston um from sportsnet a few uh a few months ago who was i want to say on steve dangles podcast and he he said that there, in his opinion, that the Leafs would seriously consider trading Marner if if contract negotiations didn't go um, the way they thought. And I, again, I'm not sitting here and saying that it's likely. I still think the most probable outcome is that you see Mitch Marner in a Leafs uniform at some point this season. But the the. Things are certainly boiling and, and heating up, and it's certainly not a good look when when both sides are negotiating through the media. You have you have uh, some reporters talking about how Marner is how he's still looking to to negotiate till till the very end, and then you have quite obviously from the Leafs' perspective they're leaking leaking some stuff out it's not a good look and in my estimation the longer this drags out the uglier the the stain ultimately
0: it is interesting when you talk about the the negotiating through the media stuff and i also think the media and um just the people the powers that be um all share your sentiment towards um Mart, Marner's yearly value. Um, if you look at a lot of the headlines, you'll see, like, oh, is he the most overrated person, player in hockey? Is like You can see the tide shifting in favor of, like, lease management, where it's like, it, it's going to come across as, like, this dude doesn't understand his real value, and it seems like that's where everybody's falling on. It's like, if he wants that kind of money, um, he's in the wrong here, and I think that's ultimately what the lease want, because then eventually he'll have to um, agreed to a deal that's more friendly to the to the Maple Leafs, and I think um that would be my guess. But I also think this could get uh, get uh, uncomfortable and get messy, and they could they could move him. Um, Kyle Dubas is in a interesting situation here, to say the least.
2: Right, and again, none of this is to suggest that Mitch Marner isn't an elite player because he absolutely is ninety four points last year. But context is also necessary here. A lot of people have talked about. Well, Mitch Marner has done wonders for uh, John Tavares' game. Well, John Tavares has had a history with the New York Islanders of, of elevating the production of every linemate he's played by substantial margins, whether it's a Matt Molson, whether it, it was a, a P.A. Parento, an Anders Lee. like He did phenomenal stuff. He elevated the production of every winger he played with. And so you look at for example, John Tavares's, uh season, his career, like relative to the best season he's had in the NHL, a, it's a two-point bump, right, compared to what he was able to produce in Long Island with subpar line mates. On the other hand, Mitch Marner, his point production jumps 25 points. He was a 69-point player two years ago. And you have people, people sitting... Uh, on the sidelines, trying to suggest that Marner single-handedly, like he was the pivotal, that he was key in unlocking Tavares's production. Where I'm of the opinion that obviously it was a mutually beneficial relationship, but one guy bests his career high by by two or three points in Tavares, and one guy bests it by 25 points in Marner. And so I think it's pretty clear that pretty clear there who the main. uh who the main benefactor was of that dynamic duo and so in, in that sense you compare him to Austin Matthews for instance on Austin Matthews since entering the league has been the best even strength goal scorer since since joining the league and so Marner is not worth that kind of money and it just seems like for whatever reason that they're taking it personally that the Leafs management isn't willing to pony up to that type of a big ticket cost
0: yeah um I, I I don't know how this ultimately unfolds but I am definitely going to be interested to see what happens there um are you at all concerned with what's going on with Connor McDavid's knee heading into the season
1: yeah
2: I mean anytime you are you have a star player and particularly Edmonton's gotta be concerned about it because he is essentially one of three or four upper echelon players on their entire roster. Anytime you have that type of a situation and a guy isn't hundred percent going into training camp, you always wonder about a slow start, the potential for uh for getting injured again at the start of the season and And so it sounds like at this point the latest report that came out was that he's likely to miss most of preseason, if not all of it. And a lot of times you do wonder about a guy's timing when they come back from injury, having missed training camp in preseason. But again, it's also Connor McDavid. We're talking about the best player in the league, a generational talent. So you wonder just even if there is rust on him, how much is it really going to hinder him? Because I'd, I'd wager that McDavid is still going to produce phenomenally as long as he still has one competent winger on his line, which he should, given that one of Drysdale or Nugent Hopkins should line up on, uh, on McDavid's left wing. So I think to that extent, if I'm an Edmonton fan, I need Connor McDavid at 110%. Like 90% of Connor, Connor McDavid is still a phenomenal player, don't get me wrong. Like given how poor the depth is around him, I would definitely have some concerns. And I think the key thing to keep in mind is, in the grander scheme of things, you don't want to. The last thing you want to do is rush a guy like him back into the lineup, and, and increase the likelihood of of him re-injuring his leg. And that to me is the only caution that I'd put out there because his long-term health is way more important than him missing even if he has to miss a few regular season games so that's something that's very important to keep in mind as well it's
0: (laughs) I don't know what's more frustrating if you're um gary bettman with what's going on with mcdavid in edmonton or if you're uh, rob manfred and mlb with what's going on with mike Trot in los angeles just having these superstars and these on these bad teams under bad front offices and everything else and just kind of being stuck and now you have the injury stuff there um it just sucks um but i think he's he's gonna be there for the long haul right like there's no chance mcdavid moves anytime soon
2: Right, I can't imagine it unless, uh, I mean, he's locked up for another five, six years. Yeah, like he's, he's years. There. Yeah, so unless he demands a trade, which, I mean, it looks from the surface, and, and of course this is an outsider speculating, and, and a lot of people in the media have said as much. And actually, if you look at McDavid's press conferences, he has been very blunt at the end of last season about how the losing is getting to him. And at a certain point, enough is enough. But I don't think we're at that point yet, especially with Edmonton having made the front office decisions. They brought in Ken Holland, who has a lot of managerial managerial experience, tons of of um, of success on his resume. So I think they understand that this is a transition year. And do you trust that and something...
0: Do you trust that ownership group?
2: Right. And that's the thing, right? Have they gotten rid of the old boys club? Because that's been the issue for so long. But I think with Ken Holland in the fold, and he's going to bring his own people in, especially when you look at the situation he was brought in, they're investing heavily in him. They're going to give him autonomy to do what he wants. Now, is Ken Holland, the GM in 2019, the same as effective a GM as he was 10, 20 years ago. I'm not sure. The game has changed a ton. And you can debate the pros and cons with Holland's recent track record for many, many years. Detroit isn't really in a great position right now with their rebuild. But I think in the grand scheme of things, unless something catastrophic happens, which is possible given that we're talking about Edmonton, unless there's catastrophe for the next... 3 3 or 4 years I can't see a scenario where McDavid gets moved.
0: Yeah, no it's it's probably not going to happen. Um what do you think happens with Miko in Colorado?
2: I think they will inevitably come to some sort of an extension and again term is always going to be the the biggest factor that comes into play whether if if you're Joe Sakic Um, from negotiating from the team's perspective you want to lock in Rantanen for as many years as possible but if you're his agent again with RFAs realizing their value they might say well if you want to sign me for six or seven or even eight years you're going to have to seriously ratchet up the cap hit and if that's the case then SAC might, might balk on that so it's going to be an interesting negotiation to follow it seems like out of all of the current stalemates that have have uh, happened that there's a lot less friction in in this one between Rantanen and Colorado. And this goes back to the fact that they've been in constant communication since the start of last offseason when they first broached the idea of an extension. And So it seems like things have been going fairly amicably. And so if I'm a Colorado fan, I'm more optimistic that Rantanen gets locked up relative to a lot of the other rfas out there say a mitch marner or a patrick line for instance
0: did you see his quote about it's no shock that i'm still in finland right now no i didn't yes so that that was earlier today um in the denver post he said it's no shock that i'm still in finland it's it's weird that um it's there's just so many parallels to baseball free agency right now and, and hockey free agency but um the RFA stuff and just remember all the drama from uh, the the Hurricanes and the Canadians early on yeah. because no one does that. Like everyone's just super polite. I just wonder if any of these guys just get a poison pill contract from another team. Like I wonder if eventually they stop this weird um, unwritten rule of not messing with RFAs and stuff like that. But if there was ever one to do it, it's like Marner or Rantanen, right?
2: I'm I'm not sure if if that really is, is realistic because in Marner's case, you'd have to seriously jack up the price and, and Well that's what
0: I'm saying. I think that's what I would do. Like, if there was ever a guy to seriously jack up the price for, it's like Marner or Rantnon, right?
2: Right. But if I'm if I'm a, a team, how many clubs are there right now that have, say, twelve million dollars in cap space and are willing to give up four first round picks? right and if you're giving up and this is why the RFA the offer sheet system is kind of broken because the upper echelon guys the only teams that likely have the cap space to add a Mitch Marner or, or a Mika Rantanen into their team they're probably not very good right now and out of those teams if you're giving up four first round picks you've got to be extremely confident that your club is going to be a contender otherwise you risk giving up a bunch of lottery picks. And so because of that, and because of the fact that you'd have to overpay significantly, even on the salary and cap hit front to land a Mitch Marner, I just don't think that it's worth it for any of the teams out there. I And especially at this point in the off season, when most teams have a fairly rigid salary structure in place, they've already made most of their plans. We're entering training camp. It's just an odd time for... Uh, a team to make a massive move like that. So on the offer sheet front, absolutely. I think Mark Bergevin sort of, he broke the, the I guess, impasse that we haven't seen an offer sheet in a long, long time. So it's possible moving forward. But I just don't think the timing is is right this late into the offseason when we're already approaching training camp.
0: So the Devils, Jackie's real opportunity for him at 18 years old Uh, it seems like he's gonna start and he's gonna be in the first line and he's gonna be uh, he's gonna be front and center do you think that's a smart move to kind of throw him into the fire right away
2: well is he gonna be on that first line I thought that was what I heard earlier today that
0: there's he has a strong possibility of starting in the front line Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. well that's interesting I think it'll be compelling to follow through the preseason because the way I see it I think you've already got someone in Nico Nico Hichie who for this coming year should be a borderline number one center and he's got a lot more experience under his belt a couple of seasons in the NHL and I don't quite think that that jack hughes is quite ready to dominate especially because he hasn't played professionally i think you'd be a lot better suited if you had him as your second and third line or second or third line guy have him have him deployed in in favorable offensive situations and just get acclimated to the nhl game because you compare him to someone like capo kako Uh, kako played in in finland and in the liga which is one of the best men's leagues in the world and And for the most part, Hughes played with the U.S. national team. And the quality competition there, like you're talking about a league that for the most part is... And the gap has been bridged, but it's not quite up to par with the CHL yet. And you're asking asking him to to lead the first line when your team has playoff aspirations. I think that's a pretty tall order and, and one that I'd be wary of as far as throwing so many expectations on there. But who knows? I could be wrong in that regard, and only time will tell. But I think I think he's absolutely the real deal. I think it'll take him some time to adjust to some of those growing pains. And I think someone like Kako, for instance, is a lot more physically mature. I see a higher ceiling in Hughes. But for him to get there, it's going to take a little bit to a little bit of time and experience under his belt to really thrive and, and take off. And so, with that in mind, I'd try and use him as a middle six option, throw him on the power play, and uh, and hopefully he can he can give you some meaningful o- offensive production in uh, in the middle of your lineup.
0: It's going to be interesting, um, and I'm going to be excited to. To see how it all unfolds um is there any other off-season storylines that uh, you're monitoring right now that you're you're fascinated by
2: i think from just a, a league standpoint there isn't a whole lot i think we're the, the biggest one really is the rfa business right now and and seeing which guys are going to sign um before the start of the season which guys are going to miss games and in which players could potentially go up right against the December 1st deadline, similar to the Nylander situation in Toronto, which quite obviously didn't work out for both sides because he wasn't the same player when he returned to the, li- returned to the lineup. So to that extent, I, I think that is extremely compelling to follow as we get closer and closer to October. It's going
0: to be fun. I'm glad hockey's almost back. We have football back. Baseball's in its best time of year. Um, It's the fall, and the fall is great for sports. So I'm just happy we're almost there. Um, And there's a little bit of excitement for the Ducks, which is good, because last season was unbearable. So um, any step in the right direction is a positive one. And also their coach is named Dallas. So anytime you have a coach named Dallas in hockey, it should be an entertaining season. Um, Is there anything we should check out from you this week on The Athletic Vancouver?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't imagine that there are gonna be a ton of ton of uh Canucks fans <laughs> listening to the podcast, oh, but Oh you would they be
0: you would be mistaken, sir. This is a very really? canucks friendly podcast. We we've oh, spoken awesome. glowingly. I've had multiple canucks writers on this podcast. This is a very Canucks friendly podcast for sure.
2: That's excellent then. Um yeah, I'm just in the midst of doing uh prospect profiles. They they um they're, all, they're They obviously had prospect camp just this uh, past weekend. And so I've done profiles and deep dives looking into video and data on Vasily Podkolzin, Oli Levy, going to have Nils Hoglander up. And then with training camp rolling around, there's a ton of exciting content that uh, myself and, and my new colleague, Thomas Strantz are working on. So definitely check that out at the Athletic Vancouver.
0: All right. I will do that. Everybody else should as well. Congrats again, man, on uh, the promotion and the full-time status with The Athletic Vancouver. I'm excited to read your work this season. Armin, we will touch base again soon.
2: Sounds good. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. Thank you again to our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. Um, thank you again to all of my awesome guests for coming on the pod. Um, and don't forget, if you like today's episode and you are an Apple podcast listener, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps. Um, you can also find us on Google Play, Spotify, um, where you can access all of my previous episodes and read all my work so chase Thomas podcast slash page hyphen 11 um so go do that read all my stuff listen to the podcast um all that good stuff uh also follow me on twitter at chase double underscore thomas uh like the facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash chase thomas writer and uh also follow me on instagram at chase double underscore thomas all right thanks so much guys and i will have another episode for you very soon
1: nicely done nephew chase thomas
2: podcast hell yeah sugar ray leonard roberto duran marvelous marvin hagler and thomas hearns legends whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history